Good morning, Indiana Wesleyan. I'm delighted to introduce the fourth and final talk in our series of special chapel talks on worship in the arts, all of which have been made possible by a generous vital worship grant from the Calvin Institute of Christian Worship. As I mentioned here in chapel last fall, one of the core convictions that has guided the grant project that the Division of Art and Design has been undertaking this year in collaboration with the School of Theology and Ministry is the belief that the arts, and particularly the visual arts, have a vital role to play in facilitating and enriching our Christian worship. It is towards this end that a group of IWU students and faculty have been working to transform our chapel prayer loft into a dedicated arts-rich space for communal and intercessory prayer. We look forward to unveiling this project at the beginning of next academic year and to holding our first organized prayer session in that space at that time. <clears throat> uh, we're very fortunate to have a distinguished guest here today to provide a theological and practical framework for this art and worship project. Dr. William A. Dearness is Dean Emeritus and Senior Professor of Theology and Culture at Fuller Seminary in Pasadena, California. An ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church USA, he teaches courses in theology, culture, and the arts, and was a founding member of the Brehm Center for Worship, Theology, and the Arts. He has authored numerous books on theology, art and culture, apologetics, and global missions, and his two most recent volumes, Modern Art and the Life of a Culture and Insider Jesus, both won a 2017 Christianity Today Award of Merit. I'm happy to tell you as well that we've made uh, available for you some free books, one of which was written by Dearness called Senses of the Soul, Art and the Visual in Christian Worship. And we also have a second book available for you today, Visual Arts in the Worshiping Church by Lisa Jane DeBoer, which fit well with our topic today. Um, about 50 of these books are available in the chapel office to those of you who come on a first serve, first basis. Please join me in welcoming Dr. William Dearness. Thank you, Dr. Greeley. Good morning. This is an honor for me to be here on this really important week. I mean, it's March Madness, opening day, the World Series, our opening day of the Major League Baseball. And my job is to try to forget all that and to talk about Protestants and the visual arts, which is hard for me to do. Go Cubs, you know? I, I, uh, I'm going to have trouble doing that. But uh, I'm, I'm talking about Protestants of the visual arts because we Protestants have a sense of sort of inferiority in relation to our Catholic and Orthodox friends. I mean, their churches are beautiful. They have images and pictures, and our churches are, well, empty and a little bit barren, and we sort of feel a little bit uh, ashamed of that. And I want to I talk about that because I think we should think about these things differently, and I think that we should we should have a, a more positive and constructive attitude toward that and, and understand what Luther and Calvin did at, at the Reformation to change the way worship is understood with great important impact on culture but also on the arts. In order to go, go back there and understand that, I want to begin with a strange instruction 
that Calvin issued that said outside of worship hours, uh, the church should be locked. So that no one outside the hours may enter for superstitious reasons. And if anybody found making any particular devotion inside or nearby, he is to be admonished. If it appears to be a superstition which he will not amend, he is to be chastised. Now, why would Calvin lock the church? Well, of course, he was concerned about the superstitions that were going on, people praying before images, kissing images, touching images, and so forth. But I think he did it also for a positive reason. And that is that for Calvin and Luther, too, what was important liturgically and aesthetically doesn't happen only in the church or even primarily in the church, but outside the church in the world where we're called to live out our Christian life. Now, I think Calvin did this in, in, a, in a way that had an incredibly important impact on the arts, and that's why I want to argue today that he thought what mattered, the goal of worship, is to be seen not in the church, but out in the world. In order to understand that, I think you need to understand the reversal that took place at the Reformation. In the medieval period, the Christian faith was understood as a journey to God. One began that journey by being baptized as an infant and, and, and going to communion every, every year, hopefully, and living your Christian life, learning the Lord's Prayer. And at the end of life, you faced God and who would, would, would bring you and allow you into heaven. The journey is best pictured in Dante's great divine comedy where, where Dante goes up through hell and up through the mountains of purgatory and ascends to the celestial heavens to the vision of God. So salvation is something that you move toward in life. Now for Luther and Calvin, that direction is exactly reversed. Salvation is not something that you move toward, but something that God brings to you. As, as Luther put it, don't think that you can climb up to God, to heaven. Jesus comes down to us in the manger and brings us salvation. So salvation, or as Luther called it, justification, is by faith at the beginning of life. Now, I don't want to imply that the medieval journey to God was all wrong or the Reformation was right and we corrected all those errors because both have their hands on something that's true. In fact, we understand that the Reformation idea that we have salvation at the beginning can be misunderstood. Since I'm already saved, it doesn't matter how I live my life. But that is to misunderstand the revolution that took place at the Reformation, which I want to talk about. In my time today, I want to talk about what Calvin in particular did for worship and the implications of this for culture and for the arts. Now, Calvin introduced into the church the idea of preaching through Scripture, preaching the Word of God. He introduced the idea of children all having to learn their catechism. He introduced the idea of congregational singing, that everybody stands up and sings. Can you imagine? That's something revolutionary. And he did this in such a way that was to have a lot of impact on culture. 
Now, those things don't sound very exciting to us, but I think each of them, for Calvin, were meant to be little pictures of a new way of life. Let me explain. First, consider preaching. Now, preaching in, in our world doesn't have a very uh, high reputation. I think most of you have told your parents or wish to tell your parents, stop preaching to me. Or as my six-year-old granddaughter put it, Poppy, I don't want any more rules coming out of your mouth. <laughs> but we have to put ourselves back in the 16th century where preaching and the worship experience was the central form of what we today call the media. No television, believe it or not, no social media. There was preaching, and there was worship, and you had to come. If you didn't, you got into trouble. So in, in worship, you came together, you met your friends, you got caught up on the news, and you heard the Word of God preached. Now, the sermon was the most important part of the service for, for a couple of reasons. One is that for the Reformers, the sermon was the primary way that God becomes available and visible in, in the service. This is how we access God. When the Word of God is preached and the Holy Spirit makes that Word come alive to us, we are able to understand who God is. This is how we accept and learn about God. Now, that was important for, for the Reformers because Calvin, in particular, like others, belonged to a movement that's called humanism. Humanism is important because they believe that sermons should contain a kind of classical rhetoric. That is, it should move people. It should persuade people. It should urge them to do something. So the sermon was meant to accomplish something. It was not simply entertainment. It was, it was, it was meant to, to move people to action, to the love of God, something more, more visceral than just than something intellectual. So Calvin would, for example, talk about the fact that God is our enemy apart from Christ. Now, this is not just a throwaway line. It's meant to, to move us, to move us to, to the love and, and faith in God. So a second innovation that Calvin introduced was to teach catechism to children. Now, if you've had any experience with catechism, you said, well, that's something that Calvin might have skipped and it would be okay. But uh, we have to put ourselves back again in the 16th century. Remember, at that time, there were only 5 to 10% of the people knew how to read. And Hardly anybody went to school unless you were a monk or, or a priest. And, and so Calvin, in, in his church instructions, said that all parents should send their children every Sunday after church to learn the catechism. These were questions and answers based on, on Scripture. This taught only generations of children about the Christian faith, but it taught them how to read. There was no public education. So the teaching of the catechism, which was required for everyone at state expense, was the first form of public education, the first mass literacy campaign. So that by the end of the century, 
Literacy rates were up to 60 to 70 percent, and by 100 years later, they were at 90 percent. Another innovation that Calvin introduced was congregational singing. Now again, since everybody had to sing in unison, no instruments, we might think, well, that doesn't sound very exciting, but it was much more important than that. Calvin says it's very expedient that uh, the, for the edification of the church to sing some psalms in the, in the form of public prayer by which one offers petitions to God or sings his praise in order that the hearts of all <clears throat> may be moved <clears throat> and incited to similar prayers with the same affections. Now, this doesn't strike us again as very exciting in Geneva a tradition of congregational singing was born that was to transform the experience of worship. Think of the famous hymns of Isaac Watts or Charles Wesley, sung during the first, great, first or second Great Awakening, or think of all the praise courses that we've, we've sung today, and for many of us, the, the favorite part of our worship. The point was to get the whole congregation to join in singing joining their hearts together in worship. This is something that was unknown and unheard of in medieval worship, and it is a major contribution of the Protestant tradition to worship and to the arts. Notice that all of these things, preaching, catechism, singing, had as their goal to get worshipers to become not observers, as in medieval worship, but participants active in worship, and this was important because of what I want to talk about next. Although these innovations were unprecedented, for Calvin, the real revolution, and what I want to emphasize, is to change the focus from the worship experience to our life in the world. We might put the purpose this way. The sermon was meant to be a summons. Now, if you have the police knock on your door and give you a summons to appear in court, you better go, or you'll find yourself in jail. The sermon was to be a kind of summons. It was to call you to account. It was to call you to responsibility in your life. And this involved, I think, a change in understanding of what the dramatic focus of life is meant to be. Now remember I said that the medieval period, life is a journey to God. Now the focus of that journey, of course, was the liturgy of the Mass, what was called the Eucharist. That was where the, the priest held up the, 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 the element and rang the bell, and people pushed each other to get out of the way so that they could see that, because if you could see it, it had special power for you. This was important because, because this was the central drama that was happening there was, was the, the, these elements were becoming the body and blood of Christ. And they were meant to make you feel a part of that event, to realize that you were, you were to be taken up into this drama. You know, even the way the, the medieval cathedral is shaped, it's to shape to draw you toward the altar and then up. That's to be a, a kind of image of our, of our journey to God. 
So the, you notice the movement is to move inward toward this drama. And in the medieval, in the medieval world, this Eucharist, this ritual was the central medieval drama. Now, when we come to the Reformation, things are completely different. Now, when we come to Calvin, for example, his focus was not on inside the church, but what I went on outside. Now, we mostly are a little bit ashamed of our churches. As I said earlier, they're a little bit barren. They're, 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 they're nothing to attract our attention. Uh, there's no, uh, no images, no rituals, but there was a sermon. And the sermon and the catechism and the singing of psalms were meant to attract your affections in such a way that you would be deeply engrafted into Christ in such a way that you would be changed. And remember, their character as summons connected them to a larger goal. And that is, that goal is that you would live a certain kind of life out in the world. They asked, all of these things, asked you to do something into the world. Notice the movement is not inward toward the service, but outward into the world. Now, what is it that these things ask you to do? Now, again, we don't have a beauty or um, decoration in our churches, though thankfully that's changing, and I'm going to come back to that in a minute. But remember, what we do have is the sermons, and, and the reason Calvin and Luther were uninterested in what went on in the church was because our life in the world is what counts. Now, what, what is the meaning of this drama? Well, Calvin described this in his uh, first book of his institutes this way. Wherever you cast your eye, there is no spot in the universe wherein you cannot discern at least some sparks of God's glory. You cannot in one glance survey that most vast and beautiful system of the universe, this wide expanse, without being completely overwhelmed by the boundless force of its brightness. We are called, Calvin said, to respond to this beauty with our praise and our life. Now notice, not everybody responds to this in the same way, but the call is issued to everyone in the world as Calvin says in his commentary on Romans 1, by saying God manifested it, he means that humans were formed to be spectators of the created world. They were endowed with eyes for the purpose of being led up to God himself, the author of the world, by contemplating so magnificent an image. Notice the emphasis on seeing, being a spectator participant, pay, paying attention to the world, loving it, enjoying it. You can see the drama, too. How will people respond? How will, how will I respond? But to really see this drama, we need artists that capture that drama. We need playwrights that draw it out to give us images of this world that spark our love and praise and that awaken, awaken us from our apathy. Before I say more about this, I want to mention very briefly the impact of this on, on the arch, which I believe was considerable. Consider first the emphasis on, the Protestant emphasis on language, the focus on language. 
the, the reformers used the printing press to, to print the Bible and the commentaries and the vernacular, all kinds of devotional literature. I believe, and scholars have argued, that this movement led to all that we think about and study in our modern literature classes, whose development reflected an important impulse of hearing, reading, and teaching the scripture, newly translated into the vernacular, which the reformers championed. The spread of these scriptural practices were to have profound aesthetic implications. Language, in other words, took on a new role that issued in new aesthetic forms. The reformers' focus on language, the printing of scriptures, sermons, and commentaries led to the modern notion of literature as the carrier of human spirituality. This is why all our high school English teachers said, read good books, it will change your life. That's where that idea came from. This can be seen, I would argue, in the rich development of English literature, especially in the 17th century, which was shaped, again, by the language of Scripture. It all highlighted the Protestant call to the personal experience of God's grace, often interpreted by poets like George Herbert and John Donne as a dramatic struggle of the soul with its sin. In all this, poets and writers sought to reflect a unique aesthetic style based on scripture that Protestants increasingly read, studied, and memorized, and which were beginning to form a uniquely Protestant imagination. And these devotional lyrics were meant to be enjoyed not by the elite and by scholars, but by everyone. Families read them and sang them around the dinner table at night such as this, uh, this hymn lyric by George Herbert. And notice, no flowery language or deep metaphors, but straightforward struggle with God and calling upon God. Whereas if the heart be moved, although the verse be somewhat scant, God doth supply the need. And when the heart says, longing, to be approved, oh, could I love, and stops, God writeth love. A second parallel influence was in what the idea that, that reformers wanted to extend the drama out into the world. Calvin had taught that the world is a great theater for the glory of God. There is a growing consensus that these habits of thought birthed by the reformers, played a significant role in the emergence of realistic theater, something seen in particular in the works of Shakespeare. Uh, as, as I've implied, the dramatic structure of the preached preach narrative of Christ's death and resurrection, which for Protestants, remember, had supplanted the Eucharist as the focus of worship, lent to everyday life a new dramatic character, that life was a, a response to God, the whole of life. Theater, then, could become an image of this drama, this worldly drama. One example that you all know about is the famous play within a play of Hamlet, where Hamlet believes he will discover whether his father is guilty. Thirdly, 
there is the conviction that this dramatic impulse in the world made landscape and portraits important theologically because they portrayed the people involved in that drama in the world. For example, in Holland, Jacobin Rysdale, Rembrandt, portrayed this drama of sin and redemption in their work. That is, they thought, they sought both in landscape and portraits to portray the world in terms of this narrative of sin and salvation. Meanwhile, in France, Huguenot, which were Calvinist architects, employed the newly rediscovered classical styles to create a reordered world, which they understood in, as a recovery of Eden. So, here is my claim. Protestants, after all, do have an artistic tradition. And we, we all, need to reclaim and celebrate the beauty and drama of the world, to celebrate it in music, drama, and visual arts of all kinds. Now, unlike our Orthodox or Catholic brothers and sisters, this tradition does not necessarily focus on art made for the liturgy or for the space of the church, and that is because we believe that God has invited us out into the larger world where we will work out our own salvation, as Paul says, and where God's new creation is little by little taking shape. Now, you are engaged in a project all year to think about these things with exhibits and discussions. Allow me to conclude by making two observations about this heritage. First of all, the point of the drama in the world, Calvin and Luther believed, is necessarily also visual and aesthetic. It is meant to attract attention of everyone, not just of artists. The drama of salvation calls us to account, all of us. And a critical aspect of that calling to account is necessarily aesthetic, dramatic. Here's where we need artists to convey in colors and sounds this, this drama in a way that sparks affections and awe and moves us. Since we cannot live in this world without an aesthetic response to it, think about the way everyone responds to mountains and landscapes and, and sunsets. So we cannot live without artists who make colors and sounds explode on our consciousness. But the second comment is it's time to unlock our churches to beauty and drama. As you've received this grant this year from the Calvin Institute of Christian Worship, I hope thinking about these things encourages you all, all of us, to unlock our churches. The heritage I've sketched gives ample resources to make worship celebrative, beautiful, moving. Uh, after all, uh, I would say that uh, superstition is not our problem, uh, but boredom certainly is in our churches. Our churches have been locked for too long 
if creation, after all, embodies and celebrates the glory of God in all its splendor, there's no reason why this praise and this drama cannot be work that continues to be performed in the life of the church and even within its physical space. This is my final word to you. Reclaim your heritage. Whether you're an artist or not, I believe this tradition influences many modern contemporaries of ours. It's seen in, in people's desire to be involved in life, to do something and not just watch it, not just observe it. We want not just to send money to missions. We want to, we want to go and be involved. We want to do something. We don't want to just enjoy creation. We want to take care of it. We want to be involved in it. This impulse is a good one. And for believers, it is a sign that you understand God's call in your life. And this has been expressed beautifully in this poem by a Fuller student, Tamisha Tyler. You asked for a calling, I gave you a voice. You asked for action, I gave you hands and feet. You asked for me to change the world, I gave the world to you. And now you wait for me. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.